Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 12th, 2023. Uh, 13 days till Christmas. Uh, not many more days before the end of the year. So we've come to both suggestions of Christmas presents and summaries of the year. And with my friend, Bethann Patrick, the book critic of the LA Times, who's joined us many times over the year in 2023 on Keen On to talk about new books. She has her five best nonfiction books of the year. I thought I would add a, th a sixth, Bethann, and then I chose not to because I don't <laughs> want to steal your thunder. But uh, all the books you've suggested seem intriguing. I admit, I haven't read all of them. One or two of the people I know, one of them's been on the show. Let's begin uh, your, uh, your your best nonfiction books of the year uh, with Heather Cox Richardson's Democracy Awakening Notes on the State of America. Um, she was actually the roommate at Exeter of my first wife, so I know a little bit about her. And her, her publishing story is astonishing, isn't it? It's astonishing. I had no idea there were six degrees of separation between you and Heather Cox Richardson. It's it's actually what one degree of separation. But here's the great thing uh, about Heather Cox Richardson's publishing career. She is Substack's biggest success. She has 1.2 million subscribers. Yeah, I've even got a, a screen of that. Actually, it's gone up. Yep. Yeah. It's up to 1.3 million. Now. It's up to 1.3 million. million. You know, I, if only all of those 1.3 million subscribers would vote. Um, she is. I'm sure most of them do. If only I she hope... could give you and I a couple of hundred thousand. And yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, she believes that our nation has two main strands of thought right now. And one is more about authoritarianism and one is more about pluralism. Now, I am not saying anyone has to agree with Richardson, okay? But I am saying that this book is quite interesting because not only is she publishing regularly, writing regularly, not only are people listening to her, but she is a historian. Uh, she is a professor of history at Boston College. She is not someone who is just talking about history in a very sort of jejune, careless way. And what she is trying to do in Democracy Awakening is to show that history's lessons are things that really matter, um, that can help us learn about where we're going today. So it's sort of the difference between, if you will, Andrew, historical fact and political ideals. Now, not everyone thinks the book is perfect, okay? Publishers Weekly had a reviewer who called it muddled. I think it's really interesting because it is watching an historian at work. It is watching her try to make sense of her field of expertise along with this incredible passionate political stance and uh, you know that she's taken. So I think this is one of my top books of the year because of what she is attempting to do. I so, so what's the thesis? So, you yeah. know, she's certainly not the first or the last person to write about America's 
dissent, if that's the right word, from democracy right. to authoritarianism. What, what is she saying that's original or interesting? Well, I think what she's saying that's original or and interesting is that the side of pluralism should win because that is what the original idea, I, excuse me, ideas and ideals of America were founded on. That, Isn't that a rather conservative idea, though? Um, pluralism itself, or well, the, the idea, idea that just—I mean, I, I'm not sure it's I, I, if she's right. If if the foundations of America were dem democracy, and then half, or perhaps more than half, Americans decide that they don't want democracy anymore, wh why should they stick with it? Uh, you know, I, I I think Richardson would say they should stick with it because it is what made America great. That pluralism is the thing that made America so strong once. But I think that's also why some reviewers are saying, hmm, maybe she doesn't go as deeply into everything as she should. And I almost think she can't because of the complex nature of this book. It's Maybe she should have written three books. Maybe she should have written something akin to the, you know, famed, you know, multi-volume uh, biography of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, there's a lot going on and she is so smart, but even the smartest person in America cannot come to terms with our country in one book. So I, I reading between or hearing between the lines, are, are you defending the book? Were you a bit disappointed with the critical review it received? Do you think there's an element of maybe envy amongst some reviewers, given that she has so many followers and she must have got a massive advance? That I hope so. I hope she did. Because, I, again, I am defending it because I think what... Richardson has attempted here is really powerful. She is trying to say, look, it's not because one side of the United States is completely, you know, one ism and the other is the other ism. She is. It's authoritarianism versus pluralism, but it's not about racism versus wokeism. It's not about, she's talking about government. She's talking about the history of government, the history of politics, not saying that, you know, one side of America um, is this. It's not ad hominem attacks on the American population. It is about the ideas that are driving these different sides these in this cultural divide that we have. And I think what she's doing there, Andrew, is giving a lot of respect to people. And one of the things that people on both sides often feel is that the other side isn't giving them any respect. This is not a book by a liberal who is saying everyone who's conservative is terrible. This is a book by a liberal who's saying, here's what we've got. These are the facts. And this is what we know from the past. Authoritarian regimes tend to wind up pretty badly. There's not many of them that result in happy people and progress for humans. Um, she is, and, and sometimes, yes, things get muddled because she isn't able to dive deeply enough in a commercial volume that I hope she got a very big advance for.
I'm looking actually at the Publishers Weekly Review. As you say, it said it was a, a muddled survey. It was quite yes. brave to take on Heather Cox Richardson. It suggests so. that in the muddle that um, she relabels conservatism as authoritarianism. That doesn't sound very muddled to me. Maybe wrong, but what's the muddle? I don't think she does that. I, I disagree. I think she really is showing that, you know, the authoritarian impulse is one that is about authoritarianism. It is about making sure that people fall into lockstep. And that doesn't mean just people who are conservative. There are, I, I, I don't know if I should say this in public, but dare I uh, say there are some you, liberals. You have to, now you've started. I do, I do. There are some liberals who want people to fall into lockstep too. What about um, um, Bethann transitioning for Richardson? As you say, she's a professional historian. She's a, a remarkably accomplished woman intellectually, and, and what she's done is astonishing on every front. But do you think it can be challenging taking a newsletter, a daily short piece, and, and turning it into a book? The subtitle of the book of Democracy Awakening is Notes on the State of America. Mm -hmm. Uh, is it really notes? Is it in some ways uh, uh, a, a compilation of her Substack entries? It, I did not feel that way. Um, I felt that she was bringing in enough of her scholarly knowledge that it was not, you know, some kind of mishmash of Substack writing. It, you know, it, if I followed, if I read it every day, I might know more, but I don't. Well, yeah, speaking with Bethann Patrick, one of America's leading book critics. She writes for the New LA Times, lots of other publications. She's a regular on the show, and she has her five best nonfiction books of the year. We began, um, Bethann, with Heather Cox Richardson. Not all the books are political, uh, but uh, To Free the Captives by <sighs> Tracy K. Smith. I was thinking maybe that's a, an appropriately uh, more focused uh, uh, companion to read with with Richardson. Uh, tell me about this book and whether you think it it neatly dovetails or otherwise with with the Richardson book. Well, I think it does in a way because Tracy K. Smith, former poet laureate of the United States is a poet, of course, is a black woman whose um, subtitle is A Plea for the American Soul. And one of the things that she writes is that the freed are discouraged from confusing themselves. Let me say that again. The freed are discouraged from confusing themselves with the free, she writes. And this is a new generation's iteration of double consciousness, W.E.B. Du Bois um, famous, famously um, defined way of looking at black people and how they have to function in our racist society. So a person might be Tracy K. Smith, poet laureate, very, very, very lauded and accomplished, 
but also Tracy K. Smith, a black woman who always has to remember that she's being seen through the eyes of white people who consider her less than. And to free the captives is about freeing everyone, people who consider themselves freed and people like her who were brought up to believe they were free and learn that in our nation, they aren't truly as free as they would like to be. And so she goes back into her family history deeply in a very beautiful, rolling kind of way. There are no huge surprises or shocks, but every little thing you see that happens to someone in her family is a reminder that Black people, people of color, have not received the full designation of free. And she wants to free those captives and to see what this nation could learn from a people, she writes this, and I found it very powerful, a people whose soul alone has carried them through centuries of storm and war. And I was reading that and I thought, wow. What if we didn't just write some kind of new song for people to sing, but what if we listened to the song people, Tracy's people are actually singing, you know, to actually hear what is needed? Uh, I think she makes an eloquent case in this memoir for people to listen to a new generation and to understand that this new generation of people of color has so much history behind them and that history is very painful is the the freedom that uh smith writes about is it the same kind of freedom that richardson writes about are there is she uh like richardson i mean richardson's a historian a political yeah. historian but does smith write about democracy in terms of freeing the captives uh it's not political for smith for Smith, it is cultural. It is um, much, it, 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 when she uses the term soul, she really means that. Now, on one hand, you might say that democracy, you know, is a political concept of a soul, but she's not limiting it that way. Um, she is saying, please, please just listen to us. Listen to the deepest parts of us, the parts of us that you haven't listened to before. And so I think she and Richardson wouldn't be at odds, but they're also not necessarily playing on the same the same fields. I, I And I really shouldn't use sports uh, metaphors, Andrew, because I'm not very good at sports, but I do think they're um, sort of in parallel. Yeah, parallel is, is the word I would use. Yeah. So we have these two first books, Democracy yes. Awakening and To Free the Captives. We've got three more. And I want to remind everyone that um, the content on Keenon is brought to us uh, partly through the generosity of Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Uh, Beth Ann lives in DC and she's going to go in and meet uh, Leon uh, Weaseltier and uh, Celeste Marcus maybe this month or next month. It's an excellent publication. I'm uh, going to run a short feature on Liberties and then we'll be back to talk about uh, Beth Ann's uh, final three nonfiction books of 2023. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. 
Liberty's is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberty's is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're here with one of Keenan's favorite people, Beth Ann Patrick, the book critic of the LA Times, um, who is telling us her five best books, uh, best nonfiction books of the year. We began with Heather Cox Richardson and um, Tracy K. Smith, both books on the American experience. But of course, not all these books are on America. The one that really intrigues me, I have to admit, I haven't read it. But if anyone wants to buy me a Christmas present, I'd like <laughs> this book, The Art Thief, A True Story of Love, Crime and a Dangerous Obsession by Michael Finkel about uh, an art thief called Stefan Breitwieser. And when you look him up on Wikipedia, his occupation says art thief, which is a wonderful <laughs> accomplishment. Isn't it I wonderful? Wish I, I wish I was an art thief. <laughs> I wish I were an art thief so that I could be in the Thomas Crown affair, you know, just it was such a glamorous life. And what people I think should find really interesting about this book is that Stefan Breitwieser stole $2 billion worth of art, okay? Um, he and his girlfriend stole $2 billion worth of art. And where did they stash it? In the city of Malouz, okay, uh, which is a very uninteresting French city. Yes, yeah, a textile uh, in, city. My family used to do business there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, they put it all mostly in his mother's attic. Evidently, they had a couple of pieces that, um, you know, were in the bedroom that Stefan and the girlfriend shared as well. But he's the most successful art thief who ever lived. And he actually thinks of himself as this savior of art. He was not in it for the money, even though the art that he stole was worth so much money. Um, so it's, um, you know, really an interesting story because he wants to portray himself as someone who is a good person, sort of a Robin Hood for beauty, if you will. But he's a troubled man. And here's the interesting thing about the art thief. Finkel is kind of a troubled writer, at least in the art thief. I'm not going to, you know, say that for all of his work, but he almost fawns over Stefan Breitwieser. He is very, um, very interested in the fact that this man was doing something criminal for his ideals. And it makes for a really compelling read, okay? Uh, this is a fun Compelling book. in a weird way or in a... Yes. In a I mean, are, yes, we reading the, are we reading the writer? In other words, uh, when you read this book, is it as much about Finkel as it is about um, the art thief himself, Breitweiser? I don't know if it's as much about Finkel, but it is about Finkel's perspective, okay? He just clearly is fascinated by his subject. And that fascination puts so much energy into this book. You really become part of the story and you want to find out more about the, the thief and what he was doing. And actually, Finkel really has... Um, 
he thinks that Breitfeser's obsession with beauty signals something really good for the production of beauty. He says, if someone can be so obsessed with things simply because of their incredible aesthetic, then when we are able to produce things more, um, what's the word, uh, not mechanically, but let's say through AI and through different kinds of technology. Yeah, I was thinking of AI. It's a, it's it's the it's a it's a timely book. Yeah, it is a timely book because if you are a bright feaser, you want more beauty all around you. Now, here's one thing I'm going to say about the art thief. Bright feaser really had a taste for the past. He did not. He does not care. I should say about modern art. He doesn't care about, you know, contemporary art. He likes that very rich, ornate art of the past, especially art that's made out of things that are valuable, you know, beautiful silver, marble, tapestries, um, oil paints, that sort of thing. So it remains to be seen if someone is so obsessed with that kind of art, Will that be produced by technology and AI? Yeah, looking at both of these, certainly these art AI platforms, yeah. the reverse is true. You've certainly wetted right. this book. Um, oh, no, it's, it's really, again, it is a fun book to read. And I think anyone who wants a great Christmas week or New Year's week um, tale, sort of of daring do, this is a great one. And then the other two books also share something with this book, uh, just yes. as The Art Thief by Michael Finkel is a book, an interestingly complicated book about his subject, Stefan Breitwieser, um, famous art thief. So this fourth book by Frida Hughes, George, a magpie memoir, um, is also a non-fictional book about a complicated relationship between the writer and its subject. But in George, of course, it's a magpie memoir. The subject is not human. We've talked about this book before, actually. We have. We have. And I have to tell you that after really careful consideration, George may be my favorite book of the year. Or, you know, go ahead and quote me on that. Um, yeah, well, now you've ruined the end of the show because I was going to ask you. Oh, sorry. Sorry well, we'll about that. that didn't happen. We'll bring it up at the end as well. We will. But here, so Frida Hughes is a poet and a painter. And Frida Hughes was born to two extremely famous poetic figures, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. And many and kind people, of a curse, I would guess. Kind of a curse. Um Many, many of us know that Sylvia Plath died by suicide in 1963. Um, Ted Hughes is gone as well. And in 2009, sadly, Nicholas, Frida's younger brother, died by suicide as well. The family is extremely troubled, was extremely troubled. Frida has a lot of baggage and she knows she does. Um, she even refers in this book to the peanut crunching crowd, her way of saying the peanut gallery, people who are reading a book by her because of this family reputation. But what she's doing here is talking to us all about searching for the stability she never had. And she longed for 
a place to live, a house to call her own, plants, pets, all of that sort of lovely, orderly life that she was not given. Unfortunately, in the course of this memoir, her marriage will dissolve. And her marriage is dissolving partly because she wants to keep that order. George, the magpie, the main character, as you said, is a baby magpie she saves after two of his nest mates have died. And she brings George up. I mean, there are pictures of Hughes with uh, George on her head. Um, George is pooping in the house everywhere. George is molting. George is definitely a pet and a family member. And the book is delightful because she doesn't simply let it lapse into sort of a quaint tale of, oh, look at the funny little bird. She never loses sight of the fact that she knows this bird is helping her learn her own version of flying away. Because, of course, George is going to leave. That's not a spoiler. That's just what is going to happen. And I I love the fact that she is able to go from the funny moments, the whimsical moments, to the deeper moments in such a beautiful poetic way. It, it's it's just a very different book. It is not one of those animal memoirs that that uh, makes you think, let me go get a puppy right now. It's one of those animal memoirs that makes you think about yourself and your own deepest needs. In a way, is there something in common uh, with George and uh, Smith's book, Tracy Smith's book about freedom and African-American freedom? Are they both focused on the idea or the ideal of freedom? I think so. I think Frida Hughes's divorce from her artist husband is about both of them realizing that they had needs so different he wants to move back to his native Australia, um, his home of Australia. And um, she knows she just can't leave. She knows that she has found what she needs. And I think that Tracy Smith also knows what she needs and she knows what her family and community needs. So there's it. it, it they would be beautiful books to read together, actually. Is, um, I haven't read George, and again, you're you're convincing me I should. Is there a, a therapeutic, a confessional quality to George? Does she get very? I, I'm assuming she she doesn't she doesn't so uh, keep anything a secret. She reveals she doesn't. It. She doesn't keep anything a secret, but she's also well, she's British, and she's also um, a British woman who's family had so many secrets, so many ins and outs. And so although she definitely keeps things um, very close to the vest, she also wants people to understand the great sadnesses that she's gone through. Um, I think she's very, very open emotionally, less open with, you know, those peanut crunching details that people might, might, you know, want to, you know, like, what was it like to be in that room while your mother was turning on the gas? That's not. Yeah, well, we don't want to. I mean, nobody likes about that. The final book is also a relationship book. Actually, Jonathan Rosen was on Keen On earlier this year, and I I was very impressed both with the book and him. I I need to 
catch up with him again next time I'm in New York. We said we would get together. This is an amazing book and an amazing story, a story of friendship. In a way, it's a book about somebody else, but in a way, it's very much a book about Rosen himself. Tell us about this book, The Best Mind. Uh, This book is an amazing book, and it is... It's one of those, it's a book that I think Jonathan Rosen, as amazing a writer as he is, as deep a thinker as he is, this is a book he would much rather not have written. It's about his friendship with um, his long, long friendship with Michael Lauder, who was his childhood best friend. They were born in the early 60s and they were, you know, really, really close rivals of a sort as they you know and Lorda from what I remember about the book and my conversation with uh, Rosen was rather dismissive always looked down on Rosen I I think a bit I think he did because Lauder was someone who really he was a he was a golden boy for so long. He did everything. He he could do everything. He was the better writer. He was the better thinker. He was faster at this. He was mm. and they were know, both kids of academics from the yes. sort of northeastern Ivy League hot. They were from New Rochelle, New York. Yeah, which where is, which everyone is, go, ends up at Harvard or Yale or Princeton. That's right. It's the hometown of Don McLean and Cynthia Ozick. I mean, who knew? New Rochelle yeah. is. Uh, what they call East Chester as opposed to West Chester because it's so far south. But it is a really, really rich community with lots of, as you said, you know, academic parents, um, sets of very, very smart people raising very, very smart children. And so they go off to college, they go, um, uh, and I am I'm sorry that I'm forgetting this, Andrew. Well, I, I, they go I to Harvard. That, that Yale. ended up at Yale Law School. I yes, think Yale. Undergraduate they, at Yale. Yes, and so um, he did really well, and he was supposed to be writing an incredible memoir about schizophrenia because, you know, schizophrenia, especially for young men, but also for young women, often appears in the late teens, early 20s. Uh, And so that happened to him, but he became very well known for being open and honest about his schizophrenia. So he was supposed to be writing a book about it. And it was going to be something that was so groundbreaking. He wasn't writing it. He couldn't write it. He was getting sicker and sicker. And Rosen, as his friend, even though they had a few times when they were maybe a little more distant from each other, wanted to help him. Sadly, when he was 35, Michael Lauder um, exploded into um, an episode of schizophrenia and killed his girlfriend and um, wound up you know, behind bars for that. And uh, he became famous for defying um schizophrenia but then he was finally infamous for yeah uh, you know maybe, maybe it's a little unkind but in a way the the literary ivy league liberal elite aristocracy sort of treated um treated louder like a george as a as almost like a pet didn't they yes Yes, Andrew, I would completely agree with that. And it is a little bit unkind, but this is the kind of thing that often happens in elite communities. Um, people 
with some kind of difference are treated in that way. Uh, it, it's it comes up again and again in novels and in nonfiction that I read. You find that someone who has a lot of power or a lot of um, money or both, whatever it happens to be, expertise, thinks of one person as the plaything, as uh, someone who can be, you know, looked at and looked down on. Um, it, it's very, very difficult. And it is so, so sad. And I think Rosen captures this in the best minds. He captures the idea that he and Lauder were the same. They were from the same upbringing, the same background. What is the line between helping someone and hurting them? What's the line between advocacy and uh, actually, you know, doing something that is going to cause more illness. It's very tough when you have someone in your life with a serious mental illness or disorder to know whether or not to stay engaged or to step back. Um, what's best for them? We have so many problems, and there have been several excellent, excellent books on mental health care and mental illness out this year. But once I read Rosen's, I thought this is, you know, I hate to say it, but the story is is everything. I wish he hadn't had to live it. I wish Michael Lauder hadn't had to live it. But it is something that I hope will show so many people that someone with schizophrenia someone with bipolar syndrome, they are the same as we are, but we also have to help them, support them, and get them good, sane treatment. Yeah, and I think like any good nonfiction, it's incredibly complicated, as complicated, if not more, the narrative than the best fiction. I'm not sure it has such a utilitarian message. One of the interesting things is, of course, that for better or worse, uh, Rosen had the last word on his friend. Uh, yes. He, his friend always looked down on him, and now Jonathan Rosen has written this book, The Best Minds, which is it's certainly going to be up for a lot of awards. It got yes. incredible reviews like uh, the other book. It's my book, of my nonfictional book of the year. Yours is George. Uh, finally, um, uh, Bethann, we're, we're doing some thoughts on AI. You and I did an AI show. Yes. Uh, a couple of issues ago, earlier this month or late in November, um, I'm asking everyone on the show if if AI can work. And we know it's a complicated issue. What particular thing would you like it to solve? What is the biggest issue, perhaps in 2024 or onwards of 2024, that uh, AI could or should be used to to fix the world? Uh, well, I've often thought that AI could be so well used in terms of caring for the elderly. And not I, I, this is not to say that someone who is older and perhaps has some challenges 
should only be able to talk to AI. I'm talking about let's make sure that the people who really, the humans who spend time with our aging population are really suited for it. And let's let the AI do things like the laundry and you know the, the basic cooking and the cleaning of facilities so that um, nurses, social workers, caregivers can be truly compassionate because let's face it, we do have a population in the U.S. in particular that is going to be quite quite significantly older for a long time. I'd love to see AI used to make sure that um, the elderly are safe, cared for, and also have plenty of opportunities for real human engagement.